Listening to the Coffee Hour, I'm Andy Bates. I'm Sarah Golseth. We're continuing our conversations with Pastor Keith Haney, author of One Nation Under God, Healing the Racial Divides in America, Bible study available from Concordia Publishing House, cph.org is the website. He's also assistant to the president for missions, human care, and stewardship for LCMS Iowa District West. We're going to get to that conversation in just a moment. Thanks to Concordia University, Wisconsin, for your support at the Coffee Hour. Find out more about Concordia University, Wisconsin at cuw.edu. Live Uncommon. Pastor Haney, welcome back to the Coffee Hour. Thanks for being our guest and joining us for this series, One Nation Under God, Healing the Racial Divides in America. It has been a true pleasure. Good to see you guys again. I wish we could see you. That's true. <laughs> right, you can't see me. You can hear me, though. That's right. We can hear each other. We're looking at now just uh, kind of scraping the surface here of each one of these sessions to give folks an idea of what they would learn uh, if they, they gathered together or even did the study individually as well. I think it's a... Uh, it's more fun if you get to do it together in a group. Um, the session four is what we're looking at today. We are one in Christ. So in our previous conversations, we gained some insights on the depth of the racial divides in our country, how Satan is the real enemy, and then took a look at a biblical definition of neighbor and what that looks like, compassion plus action equaling mercy. Uh, so today, this one's going to be a little more difficult, a little more painful, because we're going to look at our own shortcomings which I think is is sometimes difficult to do. And um, having gone through this session personally with a, a group at my congregation, um, we're not inclined to to admit that we have biases or prejudices. I know on my own, it, it, myself, I, I'm not inclined to admit those. And, and just when asking questions about that in a, a small group setting, no one's uh, volunteering information <laughs> freely. Why are we reluctant to admit that we have biases or prejudices, especially when it comes to uh, when it comes to people groups, uh, the black and white America? Well, nobody likes looking at their own sin, so that's number one problem. Uh, and, and I think, especially in today's culture, you get judged and assigned um, people's opinion about you. So right now, if you don't agree with, say, Black Lives Matter, then you're automatically labeled as a racist. And so people are much less likely to kind of delve in and really examine, do I have issues in my life that I'm uncomfortable with. So we just kind of like, we don't want to talk about it. That's too sensitive. It's like talking about how much money you make. We just don't <laughs> talk about if I have biases or not. Mm -hmm. How common is it to think or to say, uh, I don't have prejudices or I don't see color? You know, this, this chapter is interesting because I discovered in one of my, car I won't say which congregation it was, but that <laughs> my black members really wrestled with this idea of being prejudiced because they told me they could not be prejudiced because they were their press group. So all of their actions, all of their responses to white people was right because, Hey, we're the ones who are pressed. So whatever I think, whatever I say, whatever I do is off limits. And I was like blown away by the fact that if that's a, even a, a prevalent view among African-Americans, then that's going to really 
create a, a tension, a divide that we can, we're going to have a harder time bridging to really solve the problems. On the I don't see color part, it actually grew out of a, uh, I was on a trip with a, a coworker and we were dealing with a situation at a school and a student, um, a student got hit by a teacher. And so they called my coworker and asked, well, what do you, what, what should we do? And he gave him all the steps you're supposed to take, recording it and meet with the family. And he hung up, I asked the question, was the student black and was the teacher white? And he said to me, well, I don't know because I don't see color. My response back was, that's great that you don't see color, but that parent's going to see color. And if, it, if they're black student hit by a white teacher, there will be ramifications that you won't see coming if you don't acknowledge the fact that there is a difference there and a, a perception there of historical abuse, oppression, whatever you want to call it, that's going to really taint that situation as being just kind of a student-teacher interaction. Mm-hmm. Do these do these many times come out of good intentions that that don't always play out well? I would like to say, or I kind of trace it back to, for me, Dr. King's I Have a Dream speech. Mm-hmm. When he says, don't judge me by, the, by my color, my skin, but the conduct of my character, I believe that most white people heard that, took that to heart, and said the best way to do that, to live up to that dream of being one who does not judge people is to say, I don't notice your color at all. And I think it comes out of a sincere place for most people to saying, I don't look at your color. I just see you as a human being. The problem is for black people, we go, yeah, how do you not see I'm black? (laughs) (laughs) And in our church body, when I go places like the conferences, I was in South Wisconsin for a long time. When I showed up at the pastor's conference, I'm the only black person there. And so everybody knew my name and I didn't know who they were. I'm like, this isn't fair. Like there's only one of me and there's like, you know, 300 of you people. So, You people. <laughs> yes, right. <laughs> you German pastor people. <laughs> oh, so, so being, how is it helpful then if we admit that we have biases or prejudices, how can that help us? In, in in moving forward? See, I would start with, not with biases or prejudice, but I say, I acknowledge that there's a difference, that there's a cultural difference between the two of us. And so I acknowledge your cultural differences and I respect that and I honor that. Um, now, do I have biases? That That's a different question because you may have biases too that's also tied to people of color. So if you're watching the news lately, I was talking to somebody recently, I said, you know, Pastor, why is it that all these Black people are burning down stores? <laughs> and I said, on my TV, most people I see burning down stores are white. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are some Blacks in the crowd, but that's not typically who's creating all the havoc. And so we, we start to believe the things that we perceive to be true. And that's where the problem of bias has come in at. Do I... Do I believe the things I've been told, things I've heard? And do I judge you based on what I think I've heard about you or your people? And that becomes a problem. Well, and I think it's important to recognize what shapes, what forms those biases in us. You mentioned, you know, what you see on TV and what someone else saw on TV, uh, which is probably just a, you know, 10 second, 20 second clip 
of something that might have been going on for days, and that one little clip might be replayed um, on your TV and in your mind over and over again, and in a sense magnified uh, repeatedly and shaping your your view of what really happened when it was just a small picture, a small glimpse of what was happening. Right. I think that understanding what's shaping our view, our, our worldview, and, and how we how we view others around us is important. And it happens with more than just black and white. It happens with a couple of years ago, the, the big issue was immigration. And I remember people saying every time they saw someone who was Hispanic, I want, well, not, not everyone, but some people were saying, I wonder if that person is legal or not. I'm like, well, why would you ask that question? I mean, just because they're Hispanic does not mean they're an illegal immigrant. And so we start to begin to hear this, these biases in our head, and we start to assume that everybody fits into that category. Uh, and so that's where we get into trouble. We start assuming that, you know, all, I remember when I was talking to a guy who was a, a pastor before, and he had a situation in his congregation where a fam, a member of the school came up and said, ask one of the Hispanic students, does your dad, you know, sell fr- fruits and vegetables off the back of his truck? <laughs> Like that's that's just so insensitive to think that all Hispanic people work in the farms on the fields, and so we have these things formed from either television or things we've heard or or things we read, and we put everybody in, into categories, and that's where we get in trouble with this whole bias thing that makes it dangerous for us to kind of operate under those those, those, those conceptions. Mm-hmm. How do these these phrases uh, like I, I'm I'm I don't see color um, or or these prejudices? How do they deepen the the divide that we're trying to bridge? Because those terms mean I don't see you as an individual. It really means I see you as a group, and I put you in the same category of everybody in your group. And so you kind of you dis you discount people's individuality by not seeing them as a person. You mm-hmm. see them as a people group. And so by saying I don't see color, either you're you're ignoring the fact that they're there, which is what people tend to believe, or you're using that phrase to hide a bias that you're not willing to talk about. Mm-hmm. So then what happens when we, when we do uh, fully, or at least attempt to, understand uh, their people's differences and backgrounds and, and the uniqueness that comes with uh, different cultures. What happens when we, when we actually take those steps to, to actually appreciate those things about, uh, about other people? Then you see people as individuals and you don't judge them based on the actions of a group. And you can really begin to see that the things that you believed about that, that people group or those kinds of people may not be accurate. And then you start to deal with the fact that I just prejudged an entire race of people based on some presuppositions that I came into this conversation with. And I need to kind of own that and repent of that and, and move forward in that and give everybody a chance as an individual, not as a group. So in a situation where someone might make an accusation toward me, um, Assuming that I'm 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 being racist or I have prejudices, uh, instead of saying I don't see color, what would be something practical that I could do to to help the situation rather than saying I don't see color? I would ask questions to get to know people more. 
Mm-hmm. Um, say, so I don't know you. So tell me about yourself. Tell me about your family. Where'd you come from? And and start to have a conversation one-on-one like with anybody else to kind of get to know the individual by name, because we get into that thing of, should I call you black or should I call you African-American? What should I call you? I say, call me Keith. Because um, <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't call people, well, you're white or you're Caucasian or, you know, that. So I think we get caught up in this. We have to classify people, categorize people instead of getting to know people by name and them as an individual. If we break down those walls and have those kinds of conversations, we're less likely to see them as that black person or that white person, their Ken or their Ahim or their Nancy. You know. We have more to talk about with Pastor Haney in the next, in the, the second segment today. We're continuing our conversations on One Nation Under God, Healing the Racial Divides in America, Bible study from Concordia Publishing House. You're listening to The Coffee Hour. I'm Andy Bates. I'm Sarah Golseth. You're a miracle. You know that, right? A living, breathing, one-of-a-kind miracle. You were created to stand apart, to share your gifts in the service of others, to make an uncommon impact in a common world. And at Concordia University, it's our mission to help you do that, to live uncommon. To learn more about Concordia, go to cuw.edu. Welcome back to The Coffee Hour. I'm Andy Bates. I'm Sarah Golseth. We're talking with Pastor Keith Haney in our series, One Nation Under God, Healing the Racial Divides in America. It's a Bible study from Concordia Publishing House, cph.org. We're looking at uh, just kind of scraping the surface of session four. We are one in Christ. Uh, In the previous segment, Pastor, we were talking about some uh, things that, that... deepen the divide that might be well-intended, but sometimes deepen the divide. Um, and I know that uh, the the phrase, which uh, has now become a movement, and there are all kinds of questions surrounding it, but the phrase Black Lives Matter, which uh, became a movement as well, was often met with a, I think, a well-intending response from some people, all lives matter. Uh, it, where did that what went wrong with that? (laughs) (laughs) Um, So there are a couple of things. The the Black Lives Matter movement started with Trayvon Martin. Uh, It often took off with the death of Michael Brown in Ferguson, but it went back farther. It went back to when this young kid was shot by George Zimmerman in Florida. And that's when the movement got its, its birth place. It was founded with the idea and the, I think, false premise that police were hunting down and assassinating Black people. And so that movement became really kind of an anti-police kind of a movement, saying we need to not only reform, but maybe even eliminate the enemy, the threat, which is police law enforcement, which I think is the wrong place to start. Can every organization improve? Sure. Are there bad apples in every group? Yes. So the question is, how do we 
reform a system without throwing out the system. But when when that became the, mo- the focus of the idea that Black Lives Matter is about the systemic hunting down of African-American males in particular, if you don't agree with the statement Black Lives Matter, it means you don't agree with the statement that they're systematically hunting down Black people. And mm-hmm. I don't even put that on my Facebook that I agree with that statement. I do believe that life matters. I believe that if people are being um, shot unjustly, we need to deal with that. We need to figure out a way to reform that. And because every life does matter. And because I'm Black, I do think Black lives matter. So I would agree with that part. Uh, <laughs> but we got to separate the concept of the phrase with the organization, which is different. And so how do we honor I would say people of color, their lives, but how do we honor all people and their lives? And so that's that's the tension we got to run into here because you don't want to take away from the fact that there does need to be some reform in our nation, in our country, but we also don't want to ignore other people who are also at risk. So. Mm-hmm. Well, the, the, the response of All Lives Matter also probably comes from uh, a a well-intentioned place, uh, but why why does that phrase uh, not uh, settle very well for a lot of people? It doesn't settle because you got to go back to the history again. I think for some Black people, saying all lives matter, again, takes the focus off. We're talking about there is a problem with law enforcement and with justice. To say all lives matter diminishes the attention that needs to go on to those people in poor neighborhoods who are being shot. And it's not just those by police, and that's probably a rare thing, but those who are being shot through gang violence, those who are being lost, lives who are being lost by drug use, those who are being lost because of just the place where they live. So we need to figure out how do we reform those areas where people are most at risk for not living a healthy, prosperous life. But when you say all lives matter, it takes the focus off, in some people's minds, off of the bigger problem of how do we deal with the systemic oppression, I would say not racism, but oppression of people who are under a system that keeps them down and unable to achieve. Take us more into that history, the the Black American experience that's important for us to understand uh, how we got to... Now, granted, I know we can't cover it all in the next few minutes. How much time we have, yeah. Some of the, the key points, that, you know, just painting a picture for us of uh, to help us understand where we, uh, how we got to where we are today in terms of the Black American experience. So I, I, I put in my Bible study some stats and I need to update those if you don't kind of use some of those. But education in the black community is that a really, especially in poor neighborhoods, are just disproportionate to, into white suburban neighborhoods. Part of that is because people moved out of the city, so there's less funding for education. So black kids are much less likely to go to college. They're much less likely to be able to pass the standardized tests in the area. I think I just saw that Baltimore, of all the high schools in Baltimore, not a single kid was proficient. In Baltimore, I mean, that's just a sad state. Imagine an entire city where none of the kids are proficient. You, you, you've just really destroyed their opportunity to go anywhere. And college is out of the question. 
you have that problem. You have the problem of home ownership in most black communities. So you're not able to pass down to your family a house or wealth or an inheritance because there is no inheritance. You have a problem with justice where if you get caught in a situation in a poor black neighborhood, you don't have the same kind of access to lawyers other people have. So you're more likely to go to jail because you got a public defender versus a, a paid lawyer. So there are all those factors that are making life more difficult in the black community. And so we try to focus on how do we improve some of those areas so that people have a better chance and have hope again. What are some of the the historical contexts that uh, that shape how our cities and suburbs are are the way they are now? Uh, so many of of the things that we talk about are are inner city. Uh, what are some of what, what is some of that context around uh, how how our communities are, are now the way they are? Well, since you guys are in the St. Louis area, I served in an area. So I served in a, in a congregation uh, in Walnut Park. Walnut Park was a neighborhood. At one time, that was a white neighborhood. It was pretty well established. But the government passed a Section 8 ruling so that the houses in the area now became Section 8 housing. What happened was house prices started to, started to decline pretty rapidly. So the whites in the area all moved out and just basically gave their house away because they were like, my house value is just going down the toilet. And what happened was you had a bunch of African-Americans move into a neighborhood now with low-income housing and no economic development. And that neighborhood became very crime-ridden very quickly. And I served the congregation there. It was kind of funny because the church was built with a lot of the mortgages of the white members who were there kind of as collateral. And they paid off the mortgage as soon as possible so they could get out of that neighborhood and gave the keys to the church to the black people that were left behind. And I walked into a congregation with black people who had no idea how to run this church because the white people had stayed in charge of it until the mortgage was paid off. And then they just left and get here. The keys were gone. And so I'm, they, I got there. There were people who didn't know anything about stewardship. They know how to manage their own money. The church was falling apart. It was just, it was an interesting situation of this is what happens when the government tries to legislate or pass laws and rules and regulations to supposedly make things more fair and equitable. So let's dig into the the, the Bible part of the... the That'd be good, yeah. <laughs> what can we learn from the church at Ephesus? Well, you know, we talked about the tension between Samaritan and Jew in the last uh, podcast. This one was a tension between Jew and Gentile. And the Jews had a very high opinion of themselves because they were God's chosen people. And they actually saw the Gentiles, and they used this term as uncircumcised dogs. And the way they viewed the Gentiles were, you really aren't part of this this body, but if you do all the things that we want you to do to be part of us, you could be like us. And so there was this tension that Paul's dealing with about the fact that God doesn't um, look at your heritage, your background. And I love the opening verse that we have in the Bible study because it really kind of summarizes how God sees things. He says, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For we are all one in Christ Jesus. 
And if you're in Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Now that is packed with breaking down every single dividing line in that culture. So you got Jew or Greek, so that doesn't matter. Slave or free, because slave were not considered real humans in that point. Male or female, female were considered a second class citizen. They couldn't even speak in public without a, if a man was around. And then we're all one in Christ. And then he goes and says, if you're in Christ, guess what? You are now on the same level as the Jew. You are Abraham's offsprings and your heirs according to the promise that God gave to Abraham. So he's saying that if you're in Christ, you have been totally reformed and you were on the same level as God's chosen people. And I bet if you were a Jew, you're going, wait a minute, that's that's not fair, God. We were here first. <laughs> How does that then give us uh, a path to reconciliation? What is that path to reconciliation? Well, it's the same thing he would say to us in this situation. It doesn't matter if you're Republican or Democrat, <laughs> if you're male <laughs> or female. It doesn't matter if you're Black or white or Hispanic. We are all one in Christ Jesus. We're all the offspring of Abraham. We're all God's chosen one. So your background doesn't matter. Your color doesn't matter. Your political beliefs don't matter. Because what really matters is the faith that we have in Christ Jesus. And that's what unites us. And the blood of Christ is what reconciles us. And I mean, that's a powerful statement to go, none of the things that we think are important are important to God. What's important to God is a transformed heart by the power of the Holy Spirit through Christ, in Christ Jesus. I mean, that just says everything else they were fighting about is irrelevant. I can only say amen. <laughs> <laughs> Pastor Haney is author of One Nation Under God, Healing the Racial Divides in America. He's assistant to the president for missions, human care, and stewardship at LCMS Iowa District West. You can find One Nation Under God, Healing the Racial Divides in America at cph.org. Pastor Haney, thanks so much for being our guest on the Coffee Hour in this great series. It's been my pleasure. Looking forward to next week. I'm Andy Bates. I'm Sarah Golseth. The Coffee Hour with Andy and Sarah is a production of KFUO. To support the Coffee Hour and KFUO Radio, visit KFUO.org. You can also text KFUO to 41444 or send an email to gifts at KFUO.org. And you can call us at 800-844-0524. KFUO. Christ for you anytime, anywhere. <laughs>